This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Developments around COVID-19 changed dramatically every day this past week. What's reassuring here in Toronto and across Ontario, the risk of contracting the new coronavirus is still low. And for most people who contract it, the disease is mild. But elderly people with underlying health conditions are especially at risk. In fact, Canada's first death from COVID-19 was a man in his 80s at a long-term care home in North Vancouver. Some experts are advocating ending visits to long-term care homes from the outside to reduce the risk of possible transmission. Others say this could make things worse, since family members offer a lot of support for their elderly loved ones. On Wednesday, Libby Snymer spoke with a panel of experts, including Dr. Colin Furness, assistant professor in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto, who specializes partly in the risk that diseases pose to long-term care facilities, and Candace Chartier, former CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. I think that the protocols in place are already um, quite concrete when you deal with the infection prevention and control measures that the homes are prepared for. I, I, I really think that the homes are in a good position based on the pandemic planning that has been in place even um, with uh, the experience we went through with SARS. I think the biggest issues really are around um, just adhering to those policies and making sure that we have enough people on the floor to um, look after the, the fragile population that they're looking after. What are those policies for emergency preparedness? Now, we heard in the case of, of uh, this nursing home in B.C., two healthcare workers there have become ill and, uh, you know, workers in long-term care are already stretched. How uh, would you be coping with that? The biggest issue is making sure that um, the appropriate measures are being followed by staff. And, I mean, if if I can say one thing out of this entire um, experience is washing your hands and not just washing your hands and running the soap over them. And you've got to wash your hands for 15 to 20 seconds. You've got to follow the, the WHO, the World Health Organization guidelines. You've got to follow the respiratory etiquette, the environmental cleaning, the washing the hands before and after food prep, before and after eating, before and after toileting coughing, sneezing in a tissue, um, using masks and gloves and soiled laundry. And there's so many protocols in place. Um, and you just have to ensure that the staff are following those protocols. So, Dr. Furness, there are some people who have said, okay, maybe we should stop people from visiting loved ones in nursing homes. Uh, you think that's a really bad idea? Well, I think it's it's a really complicated idea. 
it's easy to say we should practice social distancing and we should isolate people because we know that works. It it works really, really well. And so for someone who's young and healthy and well-connected in their society, um, being forced to be alone or, or isolated, you know, it would be a drag. But when we think about this population um, of people who are particularly vulnerable, who already have, in many cases, not nearly as much social contact as we would like them to have, that that I think becomes it becomes a risky proposition. I mean, we know that life expectancy for for um, persons in, who are institutionalized is directly related to the kinds of social contact and agency that they have. This is this is important. So I would, to the extent possible, would want I I, I think people uh, who are who are institutionalized to still get visitors. I would like the institutions to have personal protective equipment and to really, really be uh, very, very strict with protocols for visitors coming in. And that's, that's not something that institutions easily can do. It's, it's, it requires more resources, a lot more resources. And, and so that, that's difficult. But I would say that's, what, that's certainly what I would like to see. If you do live alone and you are feeling like this or you know somebody that's feeling like this, that is a high-risk population, encourage them to have a buddy system um, and encourage that buddy to check on you. Um, that That's really important, especially because a lot of the vulnerable population of seniors live alone. And, um, and I think it's really important to have someone that you can reach out to that is doing that check-in on you. That's a great point. Thank you for that, uh, Candice. Candice, you gave us a, a good a last piece of advice. Uh, Dr. Furness, anything from you? Everything that we're all doing in terms of protection and in terms of changing our habits and not shaking hands and coughing in our arms, we might all end up healthier in the long run. I would really like to see flu rates lower next year. I'd like to see this learning stick, and, and I'm hopeful that's the case. Dr. Colin Furness, Assistant Professor in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. He specializes in the risk that diseases pose to long-term care facilities. And Candace Charche, former CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Also in this rapidly changing situation, it was Wednesday, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. And then Wednesday night, U.S. President Donald Trump announced that he is banning all travelers coming from Europe for 30 days. This was later clarified to be a ban on most Europeans traveling to the U.S. How does all of this affect us here in Canada? The experts are advocating social distancing. But the main advice is to keep your hands clean, don't touch your face, and stay a good distance away from others. Dr. Marion Joppe is professor in the School of Hospitality, Food, and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. Will McAleer is president of World Travel Protection. And Dr. Timothy Sly is an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University. They joined Libby on Thursday. We're still in the containment phase of any pandemic. In other words, the point at which every case that arrives is is swarmed over by lots of white-coated people and they're whisked away either to isolation if they're a case or into quarantine if they're a contact. And that's serving things very well indeed. There's very few cases in Canada that don't have that clear stepping stone, that clear uh, paper trail back to another case. But that will happen. It's inevitable it's going to happen. And as we move into that phase, uh, we're going to see more of what we call a mitigation uh, type of 
response where we're, we're trying to uh, to flatten the curve as the, as the phrase go we're trying to spread things out so it doesn't all swamp people in the medical medical system uh, all at once let's bring in will McAleer and dr marion joppe and will i know of a lot of people who are planning to travel for march break and of course they're thinking about whether they should cancel they're waiting for the decision to be made for them presumably they don't want to lose money so does the declaration of a pandemic change anything in terms of getting refunds the declaration in and of itself really doesn't doesn't trigger any additional coverages under the travel insurance policies you still need in most cases that alert to be up in the two highest levels or in the case of cruises just an avoid the canadians should avoid all cruises so no what they need to be thinking about is sure their comfort with going um, and then beyond that yeah in order to, to claim on a travel insurance policy whether or not there's an alert up for their destination Dr. Marion Joppe, what is uh, your take on this? Yeah, the airlines um, are becoming a bit more flexible, but it's on a case-by-case basis. So there really is no no blanket statement to say this is what everybody is doing. Uh, when the airline cancels, as is happening increasingly, then you get your money back um, because it, they were in in control. But if you choose to cancel and there is no um, mandatory don't do not fly, yeah, you you probably will lose a good chunk. Dr. Sly, how worried are you or other officials about the impact of March break? It's probably a better approach to look at a, a kind of a risk, risk, risk assessment approach every time. So, for example, what's the destination? If the destination is going to be a, a Caribbean island that so far is uh, almost untouched, that would be a couple of points toward going. If you're going with some uh, with granddad or grandma uh, on the plane, that probably would be a negative indication because they are going to be far more at risk than the younger members who might not even be symptomatic at all if they become infected. So there would be an additional problem. Uh, also, the the the, uh, the the purpose of the of the of the trip. We're talking about March break. I know that's more of a holiday system, but I remember back. When we had SARS, we had a, one of the largest international medical conferences cancelled, and the reason for that was because these were medical specialists going back to their hospitals all over North America and coming here in the first place. And so you can see that the two-way interaction there could be absolutely catastrophic should one of those people. And, of course, we just see yesterday an oncologist returning back to McMaster University who turned out to be positive. I mean, these things can happen in, uh, even among those circles. So uh, it's kind of a risk assessment approach. I wouldn't uh, suggest going to a, um, uh, a cruise for this particular time of year. I wouldn't suggest going to Korea or Iran or Italy at the moment. I think the risks are just too, too high. So uh, it needs to stand back and look at these various factors. Uh, what is your advice to people traveling, Will? Yeah, advice to people is make sure you, you're getting the clarity on the coverage you've got. Uh, if you are traveling, make sure that you're going to have the coverage and the peace of mind that you need in, in these times when we can uh, all use a little bit of that. Okay. Dr. Joppe? Yeah, I, I would echo uh, both of those. Um, 
you know, if you can at all cancel, you probably should. And, and just and just hunker down. Stay safe. Don't give it to others because we are carriers without realizing it. Dr. Marion Joppe, professor in the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. Will McAleer, president of World Travel Protection. And Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. There's no let up in the number of scam calls we're all getting. We were promised that the major telephone companies would be rolling out new call blocks blocking technologies by September, an order from the national regulator, the CRTC. Now the CRTC is warning that those systems may not be that effective and fraudsters on the phone aren't going away. Libya was joined by Claudio Popa, cybersecurity expert with Data Risk Canada, author of the Canadian Cyber Fraud Handbook and technology expert Mark Saltzman. I know Bell, I think, said it, we're not going to be ready till 2022, um, which sounds far away, but it's because the smartphones have to support this this very James Bond-sounding technology called Stir Shaken, <laughs> yeah. which is a, a fancy kind of call authentication that can block out um, robocallers and, and other fraudulent calls that we're getting. Um, it, by the way, it's an acronym. Stir stands for Secure Telephone Identity Revisited. And SHAKEN is an acronym called, uh, which stands for Signature-Based Handling of Asserted Information Using Tokens. So in plain English, (laughs) it's it's using technology to better filter out uh, uh, those spoofed phone calls. It looks like if you're in Toronto and it looks like you're getting a call from a 416 area code, you may be more inclined to uh, pick it up, even though it could be an overseas call because they spoofed the numbers calling from. I'm not surprised that it's going to take a while because you have to have a supported smartphone. Uh, I think, yes, yeah, September 2020 is a little ambitious. Okay. And uh, Claudio, uh, as, as Mark just mentioned, you need to have a very, very fancy smartphone to even be able to use this technology. Well, the issue is that a lot of people expect it to be an on or off thing. So if we recall 10, 12 years ago, when everyone was concerned about spam, uh, and suddenly we had anti-spam legislation, and then people were surprised that they were still receiving spam, it's exactly the same situation. Uh, We're definitely going to see telcos implementing partial solutions. We're going to see a reduction in the number of, um, uh, of calls. We're going to be seeing an improvement in the status quo. However, the overall volume continues to increase because the technology at the disposal of these people uh, is increasing in efficiency. And so, so we're looking at a reduction, a gradual decrease in these things, but we're, not, we're definitely never going to see these kinds of calls disappear altogether. Okay, so Mark, was, was there any point for the CRTC to come out and say, we demand that uh, uh, the big telcos, that they do something about this? Was there any point to that at all? Well, some of it is political. Uh, I mean, in the States, um, there was a similar sort of fight with the, uh, the FTC's Do Not Call Program coordinator and the Federal Trade Commission, and it, it has to, you know, go through certain steps or this protocol in order for it to be taken seriously on um, on the Hill. And I think that all the, the right steps are being taken. I just think it's it's just going to take a while 
uh, as, as your other guests mentioned as well, from a technological standpoint, but also from a legislative one. It will be a slow reduction, um, as you had said, rather than it just being like a switch. I, in the past, have, have asked my telco, uh, you know, can't I just not allow any calls in except for the ones that I give you permission to allow in, like my family, my doctor, and so on. And they said, no, that's not possible. You would think that that would be something pretty easy to to whitelist something, but it's not, apparently. One last tip is I know with the caller who blew the whistle in the phone to to upset them, another tactic that people think will work is leading them on and wasting their time. But in fact, uh, you're only going to graduate to a better list of uh, potential scammers because... They think when the the supervisor of these folks look at the phone records, they think they almost got you. They don't look at the contents of the call. They look at the length of the call. So don't keep people on the phone thinking that you're wasting their time to get them back. You're only going to get more. You're only going to invite more scammed calls. Excellent tip. Claudio, 20 seconds. Perfect. So we talked about reporting them to the CAFC. We talked about checking voicemail after ignoring the call. We talked about only answering the phone call when you're absolutely sure. And now we talk about anticipating what it could potentially be. Make sure that you understand that it's not necessarily just a telephone call. It's also a text message, an SMS or vishing. It could just be a message in your voicemail and anticipate whatever's going around in the news might be the subject of these fraudulent calls. So expect those COVID-19 fear-based calls. Expect those coronavirus fake fraudulent calls from, again, a fake health Canada, anticipate them and ignore them. Claudio Popa, cybersecurity expert with Data Risk Canada and author of the Canadian Cyber Fraud Handbook and technology expert Mark Saltzman. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Now some good news. One of the stories we've continued to follow on Fight Back is the state of businesses hard hit along Eglinton because of long-running LRT construction. This past week, we learned that the Ford Tories at Queen's Park have provided $3 million in relief for Eglinton small business owners. Joining Libby to talk about what this means, City Councillor Josh Matlow, who is self-isolating because of contact with a person with COVID-19, and fellow Eglinton area councillor Mike Cole. We need some good news, uh, and we've got to appreciate that the uh, minister did step up, and uh, she heard our pleas uh, for help for small business. And uh, I know Josh and I are happy that uh, our... uh, Yelling and screaming uh, did uh, help these uh, small businesses, and um, I really think it's a great first step that uh, there's uh, $3 million. Uh, and secondly, uh, the other thing that we're very pleased about is that they are going to ask Metrolinx, the builder of the project, uh, the provincial agent there, they're going to look at possibly opening up one section of the cross town so that at least those businesses uh, in that section of the line from Eglinton West uh, to uh, the end at uh, Black Creek, they will be uh, rid of the construction uh, uh, machinery, etc., much sooner. So they were, I'm glad on two fronts, not just the money front. How is this money going to be distributed? Well, what we heard is this money is goes to the Business Improvement Association's uh, on Eglinton, uh, they are uh, part of the city's uh, apparatus to help uh, small businesses uh, 
promote, market, and uh, essentially uh, provide services to the community. So it's going to go through the business improvement uh, associations uh, that exist along Egerton. We've got about, Josh, I think we've got about six or seven there that uh, are operational that will receive the $3 million. But just remember, Libby, we need much more than the $3 million. That is like a down payment because it's just for marketing promotion. We also need some money for these businesses to pay the rent and to uh, pay their employees. Right now, none of that $3 million will help them pay the rent. So our next fight for Josh and I, when he gets out of quarantine there, is we got to get them some money so they can pay the rent. Josh, what do you say to people who say this is a kind of a dangerous precedent? You know, we had businesses that went under because of the right-of-way on St. Clair. Uh, we have the King Street people who saying that the change in the traffic rules cost them a lot of business. And, you know, there was there was no compensation there. Well, you know, the businesses in Eglinton are absolutely not asking for a handout. They, they really are are asking for a lifeline just to be able to survive long enough to enjoy the benefits of the LRT that's being constructed now. And uh, and, and Metrolinx and the provincial government recently announced another two-year delay, which means that even the businesses that have just been hanging on are really worried about their survival. Um, now, no compensation, I wouldn't suggest, should just be money thrown into the air and see where it lands. Uh, businesses should be able to demonstrate uh, through statements that they have been directly injured by the construction and that their revenues have been impacted. And then that's how compensation should be considered. Uh, but, you know, what, what, what Mike and I have been saying to the provincial government is, is, like, first of all, we're grateful. We're very grateful to Mr. Mulroney for actively listening to us, for taking significant steps forward uh, towards us and the businesses, we appreciate that, but what we what we want to make sure is, as part of the plan moving forward, that businesses are not considered collateral damage. And in fact, any major you know, provincial transit project like this, businesses should be part of the strategy rather than sort of you know the, the government scrambling to kind of address their their needs you know after the fact. And 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 you know because you know we we, we want our main streets to survive, and we want these people to be able to survive. Mike Cole, what would you like to leave us with? Well, again, uh, the province is spending $12 billion on this line. All we're saying, make sure you put a little bit of that money towards keeping these small businesses open who just want to work. And then in terms of money, the province is going to spend another $25 billion building other lines. So uh, put some money into fixing up Eglinton first before you spend billions everywhere else. Because what we're fighting for in Eglinton, we're fighting for small business, not only Eglinton, but if we win this battle here, we're going to help small business right across the city deal with these long, long-term construction projects, which are really hard. Toronto City Councilors Mike Cole and Josh Matlow. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Vince in Brampton phoned with his personal experience related to virus outbreaks. I've worked in a nursing home for 35 years. And I worked during the SARS epidemic. And what we did back then was we were on a what you would call a lockdown to a certain point. Uh, people would come into the front. Uh, they wouldn't be allowed in the building until they filled out a questionnaire. Uh, you know, we got information on where they've been and stuff like that. And 
if they cleared, they were allowed into the building. If they weren't, they were not allowed into the building. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Natalie in Toronto, who phoned to offer her perspective on the current COVID-19 pandemic. I lived through SARS because my father was in North York General, not with SARS, but with something else. I lived through the part where they called me 10 days later to say, oh, we had a SARS patient on your floor, where they originally said they didn't. So I know how scared I was then, and I'm pretty scared now because I've had cancer, I've had MRSA, and yes, I am only 69 years old and fairly healthy, but if I got it, if someone who they don't care if you're you're sick or you're not sick, they go. But my mother's nursing home, I can tell you that if there's more than three or four cases of the flu, regular flu, in that nursing home, they shut it down. And not only do they shut it down, they will call the guardian of every single person in that home to say, don't come. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.